I should like to call your attention this morning to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the second chapter, verses 20, 21, and 22. The last three verses in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, we have reached the stage in our consideration of that momentous statement in which we are drawing out some, at any rate, of the practical applications and conclusions of the great doctrine that we've already been considering. The Apostle is here reminding these Ephesians of this astounding thing that has happened, that they who had been aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise had now actually become fellow heirs with the Jewish Christians and had been made one body together in Christ. They are members of the Christian church. And he is anxious that they should understand this and grasp the greatness of their privilege. He knows that no human understanding alone will enable them to do that. So he's already prayed that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened, that they might know this great power of God that has done that and keeps it in being. And here, in particular, he's explaining their position thus in the church in terms of these pictures that he implies. And this particular one, of course, is that the church is like a building. It's a holy temple in the Lord. It's a habitation which is being prepared for God. Well, now, we've been deducing various aspects of the doctrine that emerge from this. The thing we are emphasizing supremely, because the apostle does so himself, is the unity of the church, the nature and the character of this unity. And uh, when we come thus to the practical side of that, we have seen that in a sense the problem can be stated like this. How can we, uh, as individual members of the church, be fitly framed together with others? That is what he says is the truth about us, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Now this is a very practical question. It isn't mere theory, it's, it's a fact, it's something that is to be manifest in practice. So it comes to us in that form. What have we got to do? What have we got to realize and to remember in order that we may function in this way, in this holy temple in the Lord? And I put it therefore last Sunday morning in this form. How can we have unity without uniformity? How can we still be individuals without uh, manifesting the blemishes of a, a false and an unhealthy individualism. How can we be individuals without being individualistic? Now, we saw last Sunday morning that the first answer to that problem, and the chief answer, is that uh, 
All this is the work of the Holy Spirit. We are being builded together for an habitation of God through or by the Spirit. It is his operation. And therefore we spend our time in showing how all the operations of the Holy Spirit are ultimately designed to produce unity. So the very fact that he is the worker who is thus building the church, in and of itself, promotes unity. And to the extent that we are governed and guided by the Spirit, therefore, we shall thus be fitly framed together. And so the holy temple in the Lord will be manifest to all. But, of course, as always in these matters, you and I are not just to be passive. We have to apply all this. The Holy Spirit does his work partly by working in us, by enlightening us, by showing us what we have to do, and by enabling us to do it. I suggested last Sunday morning that in a sense uh, our uh, text uh, here really is this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Or to put it in terms of uh, our very illustration here, we've got to remember that after all we are lively stones as Peter puts it. Living stones. You remember we saw that one Sunday morning uh, that there is this idea of an activity, uh, this building fitly framed together, growth. It's a growing building. It's a vital process. So we mustn't think of it in mechanical terms, as uh, if we were just being placed there and did nothing at all in an entirely passive manner. No, uh, we have our part to play, and therefore it is of vital importance that we should realize what we have to do. Well, now, in a very remarkable manner, the Apostle himself tells us exactly how we work this out in practice, and he does so at the beginning of the fourth chapter of this epistle. Now, chapter 3, in a sense, is a kind of digression or parenthesis. It's of great and vital importance, but the apostle really takes up the theme which he ends at the end of chapter 2 at the beginning of chapter 4. Let me read these uh, significant verses to you. I, therefore, he says, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, there you are, fitly framed together in the wall, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. You see, it's unity all the time. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now there it is. There is, you see, the practical application. And he puts it in the form of an exhortation to us. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk. In view of all that he's been telling us about our position in this holy temple of the Lord. Well, now then, this is what you've got to do in order, as it were, to manifest all this. 
But here I say already in the very picture that the apostle uses, all this is immediately implied. And that is why we are drawing out this aspect of the doctrine here and now. Well, now then, let us try to put this in, in the form of a number of practical propositions. In the light of this great doctrine of the church and our position in the church, how do we conduct ourselves? What is it that we always must say to ourselves? Of what must, must we remind ourselves? Well, uh, the first uh, pro proposition, as I see it, is this. We must always think of ourselves in terms of and in relationship to the whole building. That's the first great principle. The first thing we've got to do if we are to function as we are meant to do in this building, if we are truly to be fitly framed together, the first great proposition we lay down for ourselves is this. I must always think of myself in terms of the whole building, the entire structure, not primarily in terms of myself. Now, let me work that out just a little. We must always think of our position before we think of anything else. We must always think of the privilege of being a Christian the privilege of our positions as Christians in this great edifice. Let me put it negatively. We are not a start and we are not a thing primarily in terms of our own experience, our happiness, our joy, or anything else that you may choose to think of. We mustn't think so much primarily in terms of what we get out of Christianity as in terms of what it does to us and the position in which it places us. Now, I regard this as a very vital and fundamental principle. In actual practice, I know of no principle that is more important than just that. I think if you examine your own experience, you will agree with me when I say that most of our unhappiness and misery and failure in the Christian life is due to the fact that we fail to do just that very thing. We are so subjective. We think so much in terms of ourselves and our experience, and therefore when anything goes wrong, we say, why should this happen to me? We've forgotten the building already. We've forgotten the great status. We have forgotten that we are God's children and that we really are parts of this holy temple. We are thinking purely in an individualistic manner. My experience, my happiness, the things that are happening to me, well, I've been saying that at great length in that 73rd Psalm, which is being printed in the Westminster Record at the present time. That was the whole trouble with that man, in a sense. He just became an individual in the wrong sense and just thought of himself and forgot everybody else. That is why he was finally put right when he went to the house of God. And then he began to think in terms of the whole instead of simply in terms of himself. Now, this is a principle that has to be applied all along the line. You see, we tend to think in terms of my work, my preaching, 
My chapel, my denomination, my this and that. And the moment we do so, we are already creating trouble for ourselves and for others. It's a wrong emphasis. We must always start in thinking in terms of the whole. This great temple of God. This habitation for God. And if we do that, I say, we will immediately save ourselves from many of these particular difficulties. So that we must habitually remind ourselves that we are parts of this holy temple in the Lord. Parts of this habitation of God. That we are a part of this great purpose of the eternal God which he planned and purposed before the very foundation of the world itself. You know that's a most comforting and consoling thought. Have you found yourself at times worried about the whole state of the Christian church at the present time? You say, what's going to happen? Churches are being shut, people are disappearing, everything's going wrong, what's going to happen? And we tremble for the ark. You know, the real antidote to that is to realize that God has planned and purposed the Christian church before the foundation of the world itself, before there was a single individual alive or created anywhere. Now, we must always be doing this. The whole, the scheme, the purpose, the plan. And it delivers you at once from any fears and anxieties about yourself and your own little work, whatever it may chance to be, or you just see that the thing which had troubled you and worried you so much is due to the fact that you've got it out of proportion and you haven't been putting it into the context of the whole. Or another way I could put that is this. We must realize that our first and chiefest function always is to glorify God and to live to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately again, you see, you're taken right out of yourself. If we but reminded ourselves of this every day, that we are to live to his glory, to his praise. That's our purpose. We were made for that. That's the chief end of men. To glorify God. And here in particular, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the business of the church. That's what the church is for. The church has been brought into being, as I shall show, in order that we may do this. Now, we so often fail to realize that. We've got a wrong conception of the church. We think the church is a place in which we get something. We come to receive only. Something that I can get out of the church. We come with this individualistic approach, and thereby, I say, we miss the glory and the greatness of it all, and are involved in our troubles and in our petty little difficulties. The answer is always to think of the whole. The chief business of the church in this world is to glorify God and Christ. And when you just get a glimpse of that, it not only changes your attitude to everything, but it fills you with a sense of privilege which is almost overwhelming. That God should ever have chosen us to do this. 
and to represent him. But let us go a little more into detail even with that by putting it like this. That it's very good of us, to th- very wise and good for us uh, to think of the church always in this way, the apostle puts it in writing to Timothy in the first epistle, third chapter and fifteenth verse. He says, If I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now there it is. Now that's a great statement. I'm simply going to look at one aspect of it uh, just to glance at it in passing, to show you what I mean at this point, that we are to think of ourselves in terms of the church as a whole, the great church of God, invisible and visible. And what is it for? Well, I say to show the glory of God and of Christ. How does it do that? Well, by being the pillar and ground of the truth. It's that which sets forth the truth and holds it forth. And you and I are a part of that, the church that does that, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. How do we do this? Well, we do it partly by holding forth the truth, the word of God, objectively. It is a part of the function of the church to preach the truth, the word of God, and we're all involved in that, every single one of us. Now, lest you may think that this is something that only applies to preachers, listen to Paul putting it, for instance, to the Philippians. He writes to the Philippians, he thanks God for them. He says that he's praying for them for this reason. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. The Apostle says there that these Philippians, the ordinary members of the church in Philippi, were partakers with him in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They were partners with him in that task. It wasn't only Paul, the Apostle, the preacher, the defender of the faith. They were all partakers of his grace. They were all doing this with him. And he prays for them and thanks God for them for that reason. Or again, you remember, you get it as an exhortation in the epistle of Jude in the third verse. He says, and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, he is not writing to apostles there. He is not writing to leaders in the church only. He is writing to all the members of the church. And he reminds them that they are to earnestly contend for the faith, which has once and for all been delivered unto the saints. And therefore we have to realize that as stones in this holy temple in the Lord, it is a part of our business to display the truth. We do it in that way by knowing what it is. The Apostle Peter tells us that we should be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that is in us. There is nothing that is so unscriptural as this idea that the ordinary Christian is to know nothing at all about doctrine. He just comes to church to be helped and stimulated and comforted and helped to go on with his daily life. But he leaves all this to the preachers and the theologians. No, no. Earnestly contend for the faith 
which has once and forever been delivered to the saints and the apostles. We are set with Paul both in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We've got a standing rank, he tells the Colossians, and maintain this front against all the onslaughts of infidelity and unbelief. As living stones in this building, we are all called upon to do this. But of course, in a very special way and manner, we do this by our lives, by our department, by our living, by everything that is true of us. Indeed, the apostle has already been reminding us of that, you remember, in this chapter in the seventh verse, where he says that in the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And again he puts it in the 10th verse of the next chapter, uh, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now this, it seems to me, is a very important thing for us to remember at the present time. I wonder how often we think in this way. Here am I, a member of the Christian church. How do I think about that? Well, according to this teaching, the first thing I should always say to myself is this, now I am a representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that's true about me as a Christian and as a member of the church. I am called, I am set, I am put into a position in which I am to manifest the truth of the gospel. Do you think of it like that when you go to your office every morning or to your work or profession, whatever it is? You are a representative of the truth. That should be the first thing always, our place in relationship to the whole. And people are going to watch me. They know that I'm a Christian, a church member. And they will judge the Christian faith by what they see in me. Now, you see, if all church members, all Christians, simply thought of themselves like that, what a difference it would make. But I fear that we are so subjective, we never think of that at all. We are always thinking of myself and my problem, what am I going to get out of this? And we never think of ourselves in our relationship to the whole. And then, as I've said, we not only do it in that way, but we do all we can to spread the truth. This is the function of the church. And we are all meant to do this as stones, living stones in this wall, fitly framed together. We are all together working to this end and to this objective of spreading and making known the truth and thus manifesting the glory of God. But again, of course, we must do all that bearing in mind this great principle of the unity and of the Holy Spirit. Everything we do in the Christian life must be governed by that. Because even though we may start out with the right motive and the right principle, we can so easily go astray. So we are exhorted in the scripture to preach the truth and to speak the truth in love. 
So we must never be guilty of a party spirit. We are to correct error and to rebuke it, yes, but the way in which we do it is important. We are to do it to win people, not simply to show that we are right and they are wrong. The moment you do that, the fitly framed together is gone. We are divided again. We have to maintain all these principles together at the same time. But I say, if we are always governed by the overruling and the overarching idea of the glory of God and of Christ, we are not likely to go astray. Because if I want to prove my point and to set out that I've got a great brain and mind that I understand and the other man doesn't and is ignorant, I might as well not do it. I'll probably antagonize him. I'll drive him away. I'll fill him with a spirit of bitterness. But if I realize that there is only one motive for earnestly contending for the faith, and that is the glory of God and the glory of Christ, my concern will no longer be just to win an argument or to display my dialectic cleverness. No, no, I shall do it with humility. I'll try to be persuasive. I'll try to get people to see it. I'll be sorry for them in their blindness. And so I will endeavor to win them. Beloved people, let us therefore always start with this. Not myself at all, but God, but Christ, the building, the temple, the glory of the whole. And think of myself always in terms of that. Well, now, having started with that, I've got to come on to my second principle, which at first sounds as if it's contradicting that, but I think you'll see on reflection is the inevitable logical conclusion. At the same time as we do all that, we must remember that each of us has a special part to play, that each one of us has a special function. Now, you notice how the Apostle puts that in the fourth chapter having emphasized one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us, there it is, the whole, every one of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now then, And to me, this is very wonderful. There's no contradiction, of course, at all. But it's just God's way in the Word of teaching us how to regard ourselves in the light of the whole. And you see, that doesn't mean that you efface yourself altogether, that you've just become blended into a mass. It isn't a block of concrete. It's individual stones, after all. Not individualistic, but still an individual. In other words, we must be very careful that we don't interpret that first principle falsely into meaning this. That we just do nothing at all, as it were. That we are so afraid of being individualistic that we just become entirely negative and passive and do nothing whatsoever. The whole essence of this wonderful picture is that though we are all stones together in the one building and are in that sense merged, we nevertheless have our particular places and positions. Now, I adverted to this very hurriedly some three Sundays ago in passing. 
in pointing out that we must be very careful not to think that we are all, as Christians, meant to be identical in every respect and are all meant to be doing exactly the same thing. That's completely false. But I return to it today in order that we may look at that a little more in, principle, in, in detail. The first thing, therefore, that I have to discover is, having put myself into the relationship to the whole, I must now discover what exactly I am called to do and what I am meant to do. And here at this point I feel that there are many tendencies today which are extremely dangerous and which lead many away from the truth. There is a teaching today which is very popular and which I regard, as, as I hope to show you, as not only being unscriptural but extremely dangerous. It's this. Give the new converts something to do. Give them some work to do. The argument is this, that the way to keep a, a young convert, a raw convert, standing on his feet is to give him something to do. That if he doesn't have something to do, he's sure to fall away or to fall into sin. Give him something to do and it'll keep him right. Now that I regard as the most pernicious teaching. And as I say, an extremely dangerous teaching, but it's very popular today. There is this tendency to organize the activities of converts and of Christians. The whole activity is uh, being reduced almost to a mechanical process. They are given a simple and a glib and an easy teaching. They absorb so much and they give it out again, almost by number. They are told this and they do that. It's all put down for them, the rules and the regulations. Their activities are immediately organized. You take your raw convert, put him into the class, teach him, and the whole of his life and activity are thus planned and arranged and organized for him. Now this teaching, I think, really must be examined. Because, as I want to try to show you, it violates certain clear teaching, it seems to me, in the scripture itself. The first thing that it ignores is this, that we are to be before we do. It's very dangerous to put doing before being. But surely there is that tendency at the present time. We are such activists, and we're all busy and bustling and must be doing things. And the result is we forget this vital first thing of being of realizing the truth about ourselves. Now you read those pastoral epistles and you will find that there are very definite instructions laid down there about novices. Novices are not to be rushed into offices and into appointments. They are to be tested, they are to be examined. They are in grave danger of being lifted up with pride as Satan was. A novice is not to be rushed forward. No, no, he's to be established, he's to be taught, he's to be trained. He starts as a babe in Christ. And a babe isn't given an office and a task. He needs to be taught and to be built up and to be established. That's the scriptural teaching. In a sense, the whole trouble with the church at Corinth was that they'd put doing before being. They wanted to be doing this and that and the gifts. I want to show you a more excellent way, says Paul. And then he introduces his great theme of faith and hope and love. 
Graces are greater than gifts, he says. Don't think in terms of gifts only. Think primarily, fundamentally, in terms of the graces. And then you'll be able to act. And not until then. Because rushing into activity and forgetting the being, you're jealous and you're envious. And the whole church is in a state of schism and is torn. So we've got to avoid that very carefully at the present time. We must never put doing before being. It is more important that we should be what God wants us to be than that we should act in various ways. And you don't of necessity become that by activity. You need, first of all, to be built up according to the analogy of the scripture. But take a second idea, which is this. There is also, it seems to me, a false notion as to what constitutes doing. You know, this idea is being said, oh, yes, but those Christians, they do nothing. They just sit and listen. They don't do anything. The doing is the great thing. And there are strange and curious notions with respect to this doing. I think it's about time we stopped and faced this and asked certain questions. I think it's true to say that never has the Christian church been so active as she has been during this present century. But what has the activity led to? What is the result of all the feverish activity, the bustling business? Never has the church been so perfectly organized. But look at the statistics. It's been in the press again this week. The churches are complaining that the congregations are going down, the memberships are falling, and so on. And even in places where it may be the reverse, those who truly have eyes to see are bemoaning the fact that with Increasing membership, there is a large spirituality, and the life of the whole country may be large. It's time, I say, we ask the question, what are the results of the activity? There is nothing more dangerous, I say, than to be governed by this activism as a principle. Now, let me give you an illustration which came to my notice not so long ago, which shows you the terrible danger that arises with respect to these matters. I was told of a lady, a married lady living with her husband, no children, but her aged father was living with them. And this lady solemnly announced that she was seriously considering putting her father, who had now become ill, Ill and needed a great deal of attention, she was seriously considering putting her aged, dying father into some sort of a home in order that she might be free to go around with her speaking engagements at sisterhoods and things of that type. Now, you see, there is this principle of giving the converts something to do, this activism, pressed to a point in which a woman is neglecting one of the fundamental laws of life and of nature. Is actually ready, quite sincerely. She was perfectly sincere, obviously. But she was going to put her poor old father into a home and into the hands of strangers. And thereby was forgetting an exhortation which tells the children to honor their parents and to serve them and to love them. No, no, that woman's business is not to go around addressing meetings. It's to nurse her father. I don't hesitate to say that. 
And in the same way, there are many people today who say quite openly and sincerely that they send their little children, even at the tender age of six or seven or something like that, away to boarding schools in order that they may go around addressing meetings. I'm not talking about the fathers, I'm talking about the mothers. With this idea of active activity and of working and functioning as a stone in the building, they're depriving their little children of a mother's love and of home for the bulk of the year. That is the logical end of this doing, this putting of doing before being. Violating fundamental laws of life given to us by God himself, becoming unnatural. It is time, I say, we begin to examine these things. You remember what our Lord has to say about this activism? Read again the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Read again chapter 25 of Matthew in that third parable and you'll find the same thing. The people, you know, whom our Lord seems to dismiss and to turn away from are the people who come to him saying, Lord, have we not done this, that, and the other in thy name? He says, I never knew you. Who are the people he condemns? Well, they're people who came to him and said, Lord, you've praised us and you've told us that we've done many things. When did we do that? They were not aware that they'd done anything. The people he blesses are the people who feel they've done nothing. The people he dismisses are the people who thought they'd done everything. Let's be careful as we interpret all this certainty. But let us never forget that that is our Lord's own emphasis. We must be careful, I say, of this false activism and this putting of doing before being. We must realize that you can do and act as members of this body of Christ in many, many ways that are so seriously depreciated today, but which are praised so much in the scriptures themselves. And the last thing to which I would refer this morning is this, is that there seems to me to be a false understanding of the scriptural doctrine of a call. Now this puzzles many people. They say, I, I wish I knew what I was called to do. People come with their problems and difficulties about, hey, is this a call or isn't it? And again, there's a great deal of looseness with regard to this matter. And there are many who think again that this problem is solved by doing something. Indeed, there is a well-known teacher who doesn't hesitate to teach this publicly in speech and in his books. He says that it is the duty of all Christian converts, young people, to go to the foreign mission field. All. He says the need is the call. Therefore they should all go to the field, he says. Then he goes on to say this. He says, of course, if you find after you've gone there that you are really not meant to do it and not called to do it, well, you come home and you work at home. Well, you may well smile, but that's not only being taught. There are large numbers who are acting upon it. And I believe the result is this. I think I'm giving you more or less accurate statistics that from certain countries who send large numbers of foreign missionaries to other lands, it is only about one in three that returns to the foreign mission field after the first furlough. 
Many don't even go right through the first period on the field. They discover that they were never meant to be there. But surely, my friends, there's something wrong with the doctrine that produces such a state of chaos. Surely that is dishonoring to God and to Christ and to the church. You don't solve these problems by doing the thing first and then thinking afterwards. Not at all. The doctrine rather should be this. That if we only learn to wait upon God... God will show us what he wants us to do. If we only learn to sit down and to stop being so active and to read the word and to deepen our spirituality and to get into communion with him and know him in a living sense instead of always be doing things, we will begin to know and to learn how God calls. God is a father. And the father doesn't delight in leaving his child in uncertainty. In many ways he gives his guidance. And if we are but patient and wait for it, God will indeed show us there is a part for us all to play in this building. And if we wait upon God, he will certainly and surely show us what that particular part and what that particular place is. Now I've emphasized all this and done so more than I'd intended doing so for this reason. That I have an increasing feeling within me that it is all this to which I've just been referring that is perhaps the chiefest hindrance to true revival. We all think so much in terms of our particular activity that when we pray to God, what we pray for is that he'll bless that activity or the activity of our friends. And we are praying so much about our activities that we've ceased to pray for revival. We've forgotten the whole, you see. And my dear friends, the greatest need of this hour is a mighty spiritual awakening in the whole church. I've reminded you of the present activism of today and the activity and the money that is being poured into it all, but I've asked, what of the final results? Do you know? When the Holy Spirit is poured upon the church in revival, he can do more in an hour than all this activity and organizing of men can do in ten years and more. Now oh, that's scripture. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. It happened after that. It's happened in the history of the church throughout the centuries. Go back and read the history of these great revivals. What have you had? Well, you haven't had people bustling in activity. This is how they argued. They said the church doesn't seem to be doing much. The church has become dry. Not many people are being converted. The congregations are falling. The world is in sin, and it's increasing in sin. Then they said, now then, what do we do? Well, unlike the moderns, who rush into some fresh activity and said, now we must do something about this, and organize, and then ask God to bless their effort, our fathers did this instead. They said, we are like this for one reason only. We seem to have lost the face of God. 
They said, it's no use our doing anything until we are right with God again. They went on their knees. They humbled themselves in sackcloth and ashes. They fasted. They prayed. They pleaded with God for revival. And they went on praying for it until it came. And then you had the mighty activity of the Spirit of God through men, certainly, but leading to glorious results which stood every test. And so God's great name was glorified and magnified not only in the church, but in the presence and in the sight of those who are outside. Very well then, my friends, let us seriously face these things. I haven't finished with this doctrine. I hope to do so next Sunday morning. I'm simply laying down the basis. I hope to show you next Sunday morning what every one of us can do in detail. And how what a glorious work it is because we've been called by God to do it. What I'm concerned about this morning is this. That we be not misled by this modern activism and this rushing of raw converts into activity. Which is unscriptural. And which in spite of all the sincere effort that goes into it. Does not seem to be touching the fundamental need and the fundamental problem. Well, may God ever give us grace to see ourselves in the light of the whole, and then seeing ourselves in the whole, we proceed to do that which God has meant us and intended us and called us to do to his glory. Amen.